2: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining me today and listening to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host. and just want to remind you to go to my website at CynthiaHyatt.com. And that is spelled a little differently, but it is phonetically perfect. It's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T, Cynthia Hyatt. So thank you for all of your, you know, just being on all the different, you know, Instagram, and we've got Instagram Lives for you, and and all the different things that we have for you, especially the study guides that my great assistant Amy does for me, and I think we get lots of great reviews on those. So thank you for using those, and for recommending the show to people as well. So I want to remind you that we also do an Instagram Live now every Friday at 11 o'clock, that's in here in Arizona, and those are about 20 minutes to 30 minutes, and they're usually about, their are a little condensed version of the shows that we are doing here. So today we are talking about shame, money shame, and this whole month we're doing money, and so today, money shame, and I really entitled this as, You Are Not a Number, and that shame is a, a spiritual crisis, actually. So when we talked about, you know, my relationship to money last week, and we talked about how we relate to it, when we look at money shame, interestingly enough, shame really is considered a spiritual crisis. So why would that be? Well, because it stems from identity. And so what or where do you get your identity from? Is it your money? Is it looks? Is it who you know? Is it what you own? So shame is so oftentimes a numbers game. I mean, what does that really mean? Well, how about the numbers on your bathroom scale? The address or zip code of your home? Obviously, your bank accounts, how many cars you own, what your wedding ring is worth, how many credentials you have after your name, and how about social media? How many followers do you have? And the list goes on and on and on until eventually we begin to believe the numbers and believing they are actually accurate indicators and evidence of our value. This is crazy. I get the feeling. I understand it. All of us can fall into it. I can fall into it. But the bottom line is, we're not a number. That is not where our worth and value comes from. And so the more we believe this, the more we're going to hide, the more we're going to cover and lie and fake our way through life. I mean, God forbid anyone knows or finds out who I really am, right? So we then are defined by a number versus my identity being completely original, a one time only occurring person, and it cannot be replicated or copied. You've heard me say so frequently on this show, you know, nobody can do the successes I can do and nobody can fail like I can fail. And so this is why I want you to think about, wow, do I have money shame? So when we talk about relationships and we do have a relationship with money, I'm sure you've heard me in previous um, shows talk about this idea that we either have a one up relationship with someone We have a one-down relationship with someone, or we have a side-by-side relationship. So the one-up relationship, that's like what I have with my clients. I'm not sharing my problems with them or getting self-esteem or self-worth from them. I'm giving that to them. So they are receiving from me. And so the one-down means it's about them. It's all about them. So what does a one-up mean? Well, a one up means that just like I said, the one down, my clients are one down from me. I care for them. Then the one up means that someone's above me. So is that God? Is that a boss? When I'm I'm a child, it's going to be my parents. So who is a one up? And I want you to recognize that if you are letting someone be in a one up position, I hope they really deserve it. Because really the only one-up position there should be is God overlooking our lives, helping us with our lives, supporting us. So we have the one-up, the one-down, and then we have side-by-side. So the side-by-side is usually a marriage, a relationship, best friends, coworkers, maybe our neighbors. So the side-by-side means that we are both caring for our lives individually, and maybe we support each other at the same time. But we're not doing it as a one-up or a one-down. So these are really important issues to recognize. Because when we talk about our relationship with money, I want you to think about, are you in a one-up position with your money? I hope. uh, Maybe you're in a one-down position to your money. It's controlling you. Maybe you're just side-by-side with your money. That it's working for you and you're trying to make sure it keeps working for you and so you're working together. Most of us, when it comes to money shame, we're in a one-down position. Even if we have a lot of money, we may think we don't deserve it. We may feel like we need to justify it to people. So we end up actually being in a one-down position to our money because we're dependent on it. Maybe we're depending on it because we're afraid that if we don't have it, our relationships will fail. Maybe people only appreciate or like us for our money. Maybe I don't have that spiritual relationship with God that maybe I need to have, and so money becomes my security. So I'm looking to money to make sure that I feel okay, and I feel valuable, or I feel worthwhile, or I feel safe. And so these are really important things for us to realize that what does it look like when we apply this idea of relationship to money. Well, the one up says, I feel on top of my money. I I don't know very many people that feel that way. I think it's wonderful if they do. Not a whole lot of people feel that they are very confident about their money or the way that they manage it. But that would be a one up. That's something that we may aspire to. And it may not be that you know just because you have very little money that you can't be in a one-up position to your money. It has everything to do with how much you depend on it and how much worth and value you think it's giving you. That if you have a lot of money, you feel really confident and worthwhile and valuable. If you don't have very much money, you feel like you're a less than. So the one-up is, you know, I'm on top of my money. The side-by-side means hey, I feel like me and my money are working together. So maybe we're trying to figure it out. Maybe I brought somebody else in to help me understand my money and how to make sure that it's working for me instead of me working for it. And then we have, you know, the side by side. Like we're actually, I think I'm understanding my money well, and I think it's working for me. So let, let's think about that one down one more time. That would mean that I'm a slave to my money. That would mean that when I think about money, it's a burden, that I feel maybe ashamed of my money or embarrassed. And maybe I'm ashamed and embarrassed because I have a lot and the people in my life don't have very much, so I'm afraid they won't like me if they find out I have a lot of money. Maybe I'm embarrassed because I know I need help and I feel overwhelmed and so overwhelmed that I don't do anything about it. So why would we be calling shame... A spiritual crisis. Well, generally, this concept is addressed as a psychological issue or dilemma. That is true, but what is behind this very deep and profound psychological issue that's really actually spiritual? See, a shame-based reality is a spiritual crisis that develops as a result of emotional or physical abandonment. Or someone shaming me Telling me I'm not worth anything, mistreating me, abusing me, stealing from me, slandering me. These things cause us to wear shame. So we believe maybe that we should not even exist or that there's something wrong with us or that we're not even worthy of love. And as a result, we lose the sense of communion with others, with ourselves, and certainly with God. And then we become isolated from the external sources of comfort because we feel like maybe we don't deserve them. Maybe we're afraid someone's going to find us out and they're not going to like us anymore. Maybe they're going to, you know, like push the curtain aside and find out who's really behind that. And maybe they'll reject us. So we then become very isolated from all those external sources of comfort because we're afraid to be vulnerable enough to know we need something. And so we feel tremendous loneliness. We don't know who we are. We begin to doubt our own value, especially if the numbers don't measure up. So we begin to experience life maybe as having no meaning or purpose. And we see this in reference to shame as far back as the second chapter of Genesis. And this is when Adam and Eve were their authentic selves. They had no shame whatsoever, and there was complete freedom. But as soon as they betrayed themselves by going outside the bounds, engaging in self-will versus free will, it was against what God has established as safe, this value system that they had agreed to. They were then shame-based and filled with fear. And otherwise, in other words, they knew they were naked. Prior to that, I mean, if you've had little toddlers in your house, little three-year-olds, they love to run around naked. They don't have any shame at all. They think it's great. It's great fun. But see, the older that we get, we learn that we need to cover. So what I want to make sure is that you're covering the right things and not covering things because you're shame-based. So join me in the next segment as we talk more about this idea of self-will and free will. Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations with Cynthia, and I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host. Thank you for joining me. I hope that this is a great beginning to your week. And that these shows are, I hope that they are very encouraging and helpful to you as you work on being the best version of you. So we are talking about shame. And what I really entitled this show is Shame. You Are Not a Number. Because we are so obsessed with numbers in our culture. And we measure everything by numbers. So we use the bathroom scale, right? We use our bank account. We use how much we see on social media as to who's following us, how many times we have made made the deal, how many times we've messed up, how many relationships have failed us. I mean, we, we are relentless about counting. And so when we talk about this idea of spiritual crisis... We recognize that it means that we believe that in almost to the point that we shouldn't exist, that there's really something wrong with us and that we are not worthy of love. And as a result, we lose the sense of communion with others, self, and our connection to God. And then we become isolated from all those external sources of comfort. And what I mean by those external sources of great comfort, that's being known by someone that you know them and they know you. And that it's wonderful to be known and still loved. Because our biggest fear is that somebody will get to know me and they will start to not like me anymore. So we end up experiencing life as if it has no meaning or purpose. So we see this reference to shame in in the book of Genesis when we talked about the fact that Adam and Eve had no shame and they were both naked they felt no shame that's genesis chapter 225 and see we understand that god gave us free will but we also have this other issue that's called self will and if you've ever heard the term self will run riot that's many times what we are doing so we are using our free will to indulge in our self will so it's our way our freedom and when we do that, we experience much bondage, much fear, and much shame. See, it's a lie to think that that self-will is going to give you freedom. It actually causes us to have more anxiety. Because this is the way of entitlement, and we are now being our own God. And this is what we know that Proverbs says about this. And this is Proverbs um, chapter 14, verse 12. And it says, There is a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. That has been a very powerful proverb for me in my life. I mean, I can really be convincing about something I think is right. And God says to me, hey, you know, Cynthia, there's a lot of things that appear to be right. But in the end, they're going to lead to some type of death for you. Maybe not a physical death, maybe a financial death, maybe a relational death. Maybe um, an occupational death. Maybe I'll I'll lose the the um, I don't know the the clout. Maybe I'll lose people's you know respect for me. And so I want you to think about. There's a way that seems right to us, and usually if we have to prove it, if we have to sell it to ourselves or to God or to somebody else, it's probably a good indication that it might not be quite so right. So, what's the difference between guilt and shame? Because this is really important when it comes to any type of emotional management, financial management, physical management, relational management. What is the difference between shame and guilt? Well, guilt says I've done a bad thing, and shame means I am a bad thing. And that's a very different experience. See, those of us that deal with guilt, if we actually repent of it, make amends for it, recognize that that guilt is telling me I stepped outside the line, that it doesn't have anything to do with my worth and value, that it has everything to do with my own quality of life. So I can recognize that guilt is a really important mechanism in my psyche. It keeps me safe. It helps me know if I'm going too far. It helps me to stop and to recognize, you know, I may want to rethink this. I don't know if this is really a good decision. That's what guilt does for me. It's like the one of the indicators on the dashboard of your car that you don't want to ignore. But what does shame tell me? See, guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I'm a wrong thing. That I'm inherently wrong. I'm inherently bad. I'm rotten to the core. There's something dreadfully wrong with me, that if people find out who I am, they won't like me, they won't love me or respect me anymore. So I have to hide who I think I really am from everybody else. And that is always a lie. So again, healthy shame tells me not to go too far. Healthy shame says, yeah, I probably better not tell that joke in this group. They might not appreciate it like I do. Healthy shame says, you know, depending on the situation and maybe the event I'm going to, I might want to dress a little bit differently, right? Or I might want to be careful the topics I introduce. That's healthy shame. Healthy shame says, whoa, maybe we better stop. Versus guilt says, I didn't stop in time, so I better make amends. So when we think about a shame-based individual... This is a person that feels like there's something wrong wrong with them to the core of their being. And so everything they're doing is trying to hope and help that nobody sees how bad they really are. That they're really not lovable. That they're not really likable. That there's nothing special about them. So their their worth and value about who they are is pretty much at a deficit. And so what happens for them, that's toxic shame. That's a shame-based person that everything they're doing is trying to undo the thought that people aren't going to like them, value them, or, or even want to know them. And so shame-based people are always acting from a position of being in a one down. So they're always thinking that they have to prove who they are. They have to prove their worth, prove their value, prove that they're lovable. And so that shame-based individual is exhausted all the time and also feels very lonely and very afraid. So when you think about the causes of shame, and we've done some shows on this, but the, the biggest cause of shame, inherent shame, is that I have agreed with the enemy of my soul That I am less than, that I'm not a valuable human being, that my value is based solely on my performance, what I own, how I look, and and how much I can get from people. And when I have that shame base and I fall into believing that, then I'm going to have what we talk about as toxic shame. But now it's just in my being. It's, in, it's in, my, in the cellular level of my being that I feel like I'm faking things all the time. I'm having to just prove to everybody that, you know, the emperor has clothes. Or when you think about the Wizard of Oz, you know, you pull back the curtain and you find out who he really is. So we're afraid to be known for who we are because we're sure that nobody will really like the real me. So we're going to talk more about this, more about toxic shame, and how this affects your whole entire life. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in the next segment as we talk more about shame and you are not a number. I hear the whispers in my well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for listening. This is Conversations with Cynthia. I so appreciate all of your presence on social media and just getting involved in a lot of the things that we are offering you. We have study guides that go with each of the shows. We have, lo- we have different book versions of things. We have workbooks. Uh, we have all kinds of different podcasts. We have Instagram Live now. I've done a, quite a few Instagrams. And so I I want you to really take advantage of what we have out there for you. So we're talking about shame and this idea of shame versus guilt. So if you're just tuning in, the big takeaway from today's show is that shame tells me I'm a bad person. And guilt tells me I did a bad thing. They're very, very different. Now, if I don't listen to my guilt if I try to ignore it, then it can become shame because now I'm feeling just like a bad person instead of that I just did a bad thing. So this is where it's very important that we recognize that shame is truly a spiritual crisis because what it's doing, it's attacking our being at the very core of who we are. And it's telling us, telling the world or thinking that the world is believing that if you really got to know me, you wouldn't like me anymore. If you really knew who I was, you wouldn't want to be with me. And so as a result, our society, we attempt to free ourselves from bondage of, of you know, all this toxic shame through legalism, hyper-moralism, performance-oriented behavior, So we're going to work really hard on showing the world how great we are and hope that nobody sees behind the curtain. And so we get really legalistic, like we follow all the rules. We're a perfect driver. We make our bed every day. All of our, you know, notes and files are in order. And all of our bank accounts are perfectly in order. And we tithe perfectly because we're trying to get worth and value, Instead of recognizing that my worth and value comes from the fact that God decided to create me because he wanted to be with me for the rest of eternity. So when I get my self-worth from who I know, how much money I have, how well I perform, how I look, how thin I am, how muscular I am, how many credentials I have behind you know, my name then what happens is I'm doing this what we call performance-oriented behavior. And it does not free me from judgment, disapproval, condemnation, or criticism. In fact, I get more of it. Maybe not from the people around me, but from me. Because I'm always having to do more to get that feeling. It's the same thing with drugs and alcohol. If a little is good, more is better, right? And so I might start with just a little when it comes to drugs and alcohol. But I keep needing more and more than I did the first time I did it. So this is what performance-oriented behavior looks like. I always have to top the last thing I did. And it's exhausting. So toxic shame, the shame-based issue, it really originates from the outside. And this comes from shame-based family that will struggle even with their own sense of of well-being and and maybe they feel defect. And so many times it also emanates from abuse. So we get this, this toxic shame from the way that someone talked to us, the way we were treated, what was withheld from us. Maybe it was emotionally toxic. Maybe physically we were beaten. Sexually, maybe we were abused. Intellectually, maybe we were told we were dumb or stupid all the time. And it ends up then feeling very abandoning because that child, that teenager, feels like they have no value. So if they have no value, they feel abandoned. And abandonment increases shame. And so this is what happens when we have caregivers that are not able to love us in a healthy manner. And they don't care for us in a healthy way. So intellectually and spiritually, we also can have abuse. And that's through disapproval or people that are loving us conditionally. It's only based on our behaviors. Maybe they reject our feelings. They won't really actively relate to us. And so our our society is also very shaming because it focuses so much on our appearance, our social standing, our success, our popularity, And our churches are also made up of people that that have been shamed. And so as a system, we may experience varying degrees of shame even within our churches. Because the enemy of our soul is constantly condemning us, intellectually and spiritually abusing us. So when we think about this idea of shame, the shame says, I am a bad thing, and guilt says, I did a bad thing. So, join with me in the last segment as we talk more about healthy shame and what covering actually means. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host. Thank you for joining me today, and we are talking about shame. And you are not a number. And how much shame-based behaviors we're thinking always seems to be reducing us to a number, placing us on a scale. How far are we from the top? How close are we to the bottom? Are we just mediocre and in the middle? And so shame has a way, if it's done inappropriately, of constantly making us feel like we're in a one-down position. And that can actually create more shame. So instead of it being a humility issue, it becomes embarrassment. It becomes hiding. And so when we talk about this idea of shame, if the only thing you remember is that shame is this idea that I am a bad thing. Shame tells me I'm a bad thing. Where guilt tells me I did a bad thing. I'm not necessarily bad, but I did something bad. So I can fix that. But when I have shame that says I am a bad thing, it feels like it's irreparable, that it can't be fixed. So when we think about this idea of what God has done for us, this is where he has produced this wonderful um, quality that's called covering. Excuse me. And so when we see this, If we look in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? That all the Holy Spirit is saying is, if you belong to Jesus, there's no condemnation. It doesn't even say in this verse that he righted all the wrongs. It doesn't even say he fixed everything. He just simply says, hey, if you're with me, no condemnation. So we have to practice this idea of what we call covering. And healthy shame, what this means is that this originates from the inside of me. It's not something that's done outside to me that I integrate. See, after I've learned and assimilated shaming messages and behaviors from others, then I actively and unconsciously start engaging in shaming thoughts, behaviors, and relationships, and I end up getting a lot of intrapersonal abandonment. So the concept of covering versus hiding, this is what's so powerful that God gives us. And so we see that, we see that here in the, the privacy principle of covering, that, that secrets provide shame, but covering provides safety. And so the distinction between secrecy and privacy is very powerful. And what clients find with me is they have, wow, they finally have the right of privacy. They can kind of like emotionally undress and not be afraid. So that's very different than them coming and telling me a bunch of secrets that they're afraid I'm going to go tell others. So this idea of covering... Means that we cover someone, excuse me, my goodness, that we cover someone while they're learning, while they're healing. And this is what God did with Adam and Eve. When they realized they were naked and he gave them covering, he said, oh, now they know that. They weren't supposed to know that right now. Like the three-year-old doesn't really think anything about running around the house naked. But when we grow up, we either feel condemnation for who we are, or we feel covered and safe to be the best that we can possibly be. So you see, covering provides privacy, whereas secrets provide shame. And so there's that big distinction between secrecy and privacy. When we're in shame-based families with many secrets and abuse, we find that we would like to hide. And we're not really allowed privacy, so we become very secretive. And the privacy can be relational. If you've been in a family where they out everybody at the dinner table, or you even have friends that come over for dinner and everybody starts outing you about all your mistakes and all the things that you've done as a kid. And there's no Privacy. So when we see this understanding and see and and recognize and understand the grace of God, we see it in the eighth chapter of Romans, where it does say again, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when I read that verse and I realized that it didn't start with, I took your sins away so there's no condemnation. He just simply says, hey, if you're in me, if you're with me, If you're hanging out with me, if you know me, there's no condemnation for you. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. So what happens when we have this shame-based feeling? We actually become shameless, and we practice shamelessness. And it's very understandable. It's a rebellious move, because we know how much Jesus hates legalism. However, it's not very smart you know, as, a, as an antidote for all the guilt and condemnation we feel to actually just say, well, then I'm going to do more. Since there's no condemnation, I'm just going to do more. And so shame in and of itself creates tremendous fear and it activates the sympathetic nervous system. And that's the fight, flight, or freeze response that we perceive when we do dangerous things or are in a dangerous situation. Because shame exacerbates everything. It's like living a life on crack. Everything is amplified, everything is suspect, everything is untrustworthy. And it counterfeits as freedom. Saying that the ultimate freedom is no self-control, when actually the ultimate freedom is healthy self-control. And so the effects are still the same when you're shamed or shame-based. And it leads to a lot of legalism and hyper-moralism, Because it's this this attempt to get back value by saying, well, I'm not going to be ashamed of anything then. It has no power over me. Where in all actuality, at the very core of our being, we know what is good and what is evil. And if we do evil, pretending like we don't care, I wish it worked. It doesn't work. I've tried it. Everybody I know has tried it. It doesn't work. And see, we get these control issues then that happen. We either do too much or we do too little because we don't really know where the boundaries are. We don't know where the barriers are. And so our relationships suffer. And intimacy is nearly impossible because we can't be authentic. And we don't know how to practice humility. Because when we're shame-based, we can't do humility. We only can feel humiliated. And this is what shame, that really unhealthy, toxic shame does. And so we struggle with self-worth. We struggle with self-respect. Once we struggle with those two things, we are going to betray ourselves regularly. And we are going to feel in a one-down position. And so when pride then is paradoxically paired with a low sense of self-worth guess what happens? That, that person becomes vain, very fragile, and very self-serving. The opposite is seen in Christ's life. He was very proud of who he was, so his actions personified who he was. He didn't apologize for who he was, and he never betrayed who he was with any type of bad behavior or attitudes that didn't match his authentic self. So we see the tremendous dignity he possessed as those around him, never losing sight of who he was and why he was there. He was humiliated relentlessly, but he had pride in who God told him he was. And so the lack of self-worth ends up being this loss of dignity. And see, both ends of the continuum result in a disconnect from God. It's not a lack of love from God, but it's an inability to experience him. When we get so covered in shame, we're afraid to even be looked at. We're afraid to answer any type of a question. And so when we talk about this spiritual crisis, we see it was first experienced by Adam and Eve. And this is because it created a separation or a disconnect from their own authenticity and their connection to God. So instead of feeling guilty about what they did, they just felt bad about who they were. And this is why they attempted to cover themselves. So when God introduced covering, what that meant was the sacrifice of life and the shedding of blood. He covered who they were as humans. And he dealt with what they did, their behavior. He still saw them as valuable and lovable and still had to address the behaviors. That was not God's manifest creation. So he can do both things that seem mutually you know, incompatible. So we think about this this Romans chapter 4, verse 7 that says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That means I don't have to pay for them. means I don't have to try to always fix them and restore them to what it was completely before I touched it and messed it up. So we see here that covering provides privacy, whereas secrets provide shame. And there's a big distinction between secrecy and privacy. They can feel somewhat the same in the beginning, but the outcome is always different. So when we're in shame-based families and they have lots of secrets and abuse, we end up really wanting to hide. And that's different than privacy. So if we're not allowed privacy, then we become secretive. So what is man's solution to shame? Well, the idea of shameless or shamelessness. And so when we look at some of what media has done, I, I don't know if you remember, um, the it's a TV show, The Gallagher, Gallagher Life, and it, it really talked about the Gallaghers and that they don't just set the bar, they raise it, right, and not raising it in a healthy way. And so that was this idea that these people couldn't be good people, so they just gave up completely. He was this single father of six children. He spends his days drunk. His kids learn to take care of themselves barely. And the show's producers sought to distinguish it from previous American working class shows by highlighting, you know, this guy's alcoholism and how it affects the family, but not in a a healthy, positive way. That it almost, you know, aggrandizes this behavior. That if I can't be good, I just won't even try. I'll just quit altogether. And so this is part of understanding that when people are acting out of toxic shame, it's that they lost the God-given identity, the relationship with God that brings us our worth and our value, that God says he likes to look on us, he likes to be with us, he likes to walk with us. So when we look at healthy and toxic shame, Again, let's just review this a little bit. Guilt says I've done something bad. Shame says I am bad. Now, the first part of the sentence, guilt says I've done something bad, that is a good example of a healthy conscience. But if I let it go farther and I decide that because I've done something bad, I am a bad person, I now am dealing with toxic shame. And in the, the case of a shame-based identity, it isn't that we even feel shame about doing bad things anymore. We just feel that we're bad people, that if people find out who we are, they won't love us. And so this is what's so important when you think about your worth and value. And money shame is a great way to identify where am I getting my worth and value from? Am I striving or am I accepting The love from God. So think about this during the week. I want you to think about guilt versus shame and that even if you do a bad thing, you're not a bad person. And do not let numbers define who you are and your identity. God bless you. I'll talk to you next week.
1: We hope this past hour has been encouraging, motivating, and inspiring to you. The messages and teachings shared during the show are given as a way to reach you, the listener, with ideas and insights on how you may not only improve your life, but have more successful and meaningful relationships as you become the best version of you. Cynthia is available as a keynote speaker or guest speaker for your corporate or spiritual events. Cynthia is able to customize a message for any audience attending a meeting, retreat, or conference. In addition to this, she oftentimes partners her messages with music, as she is a singer and musician. Please contact her through her website at CynthiaHyatt.com. If you missed any part of this program, you can download the most current show from her website at CynthiaHyatt.com or hear a replay on your favorite podcast server. Please take a moment to visit her Facebook page at Cynthia Hyatt Incorporated and leave your ideas and comments about today's show. Now, be your own best version.